and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Uh, the kids can go to children's church. Whoa, the kids can go to children's church. Hopefully, this mic won't die on me today. I'm going to move this iPad and use mine and hope we don't get them mixed up. Because you don't want to hear me sing. You may not want to hear me preach either, but that's why I'm here. Good to be with you today. Good to be back again. And um, I just want to let this church family know that uh, my wife, Jana, and I pray regularly for this church. Of course, we have for over 35 years, but especially in the last few months, as you go through a time of transition, uh, we pray for you. And my, my heart's prayer for you as a church uh, it really centers on God's purposes continuing to be expressed through you as a body of believers. And in that specifically, I'm thinking about the practice of, of God's love. And, and not love when you say the word kind of in a Hollywood vague way, but a love that's very specific, as Jesus pointed out, that's first of all exhibited toward God that we love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Then love for those around us, neighbors as ourselves. And then uh, also the love for our community and for our world around us. And I, it's our prayer that, that you will bind together as a congregation in that. I know these transition times sometimes can be a little difficult, a little tense. And people are kind of looking around, you know, who's in charge of what? And you scramble for some things and sometimes people... Uh, there, there are some tensions that rise, but I just pray that as a church body that you'll just band together and love each other well and love your community well and primarily love God well, and, and uh, we seek for his best in that. I want to pray, and then we'll, we'll get into the, the message this morning from Mark chapter 2. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, may we all gather at your feet and seek primarily to be yours in regard to loving you and loving those around us. Uh, and, and just now we ask that, that our love toward you would be expressed as we hear your words and, and as we see what your Son has done to call us to be his own. And so give us ears to hear, give us hearts to receive, and give us lives to do, to say, to be what you've called us to be. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So it's my understanding that Jacob has been sharing from the Gospel of Mark over the last few weeks, and we'll continue in that, and so I asked him if it would be all right for me to hop into that series rather than just go my own way and confuse you. It's nice to have some continuity, I think, from week to week, and so uh, this week and next Sunday as well, I'll be uh, sharing some things from Mark as well, going deeper into the stories of Jesus, stories that 
we want to know better so that we can share them better, so that when people ask us what it is about a Sunday morning, what it is about our lives that's worthwhile checking out, we can begin to tell them about this one that we follow. And so we are, as Jesus followers, people who have a story to tell. And that story to tell is not really based so much in our story. It's his story that we get involved in. And and I like the Gospel of Mark because it, it jumps so immediately into that. And I like even the way that Mark begins his Gospel with those words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the beginning of our story. It has other beginnings too. Certainly Genesis 1 is a beginning, but this is the beginning of where God brings to us this new kingdom, this new covenant, this new way that Jesus introduces. And this story has become our story. The story about Jesus being announced by John, Jesus being affirmed by the Father, Jesus being tested in the wilderness, Jesus healing the demon-possessed and the leprous and the lame. And to morning, this morning to this story that we look at here in Mark chapter 2, beginning, beginning in verse 13, this story of a call. I'm going to read it again just so we have it in mind here. Uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." couple of details that are helpful for us to kind of frame the story and keep in mind what's going on here. We're in the region of Capernaum early in Jesus' ministry time. Capernaum is the home base for Jesus, at least beginning out in his time of ministry, and it's a seaport. And so as we begin this story by the sea, it's not just randomly picked. I, I think there is some transition that Mark helps us with here in chapter 2. Although we've looked at the story of the paralytic last week, uh, there is some similarity. There is some connection between this. We come to another story now here in this call of Levi, in which part of it, at least, takes place in a home. And it takes place alongside of people who are largely marginalized by society. And it takes place to primarily preach to the world forgiveness of sin and to display that. But this also has a change of tone when we get to this story. When, when we get to Mark 2, verse 13, you begin to feel some of the undercurrents of opposition against Jesus. In fact, this story that we're looking at this morning is the first of four controversies which come to Jesus over Jewish tradition, each of them questioning the behavior of Jesus and how it lines up or doesn't line up with Jewish tradition. And it's interesting how Jesus deals with each of these. In the first three of these events that come, one after the other, Jesus responds to a verbal objection with a very terse statement. And when he says it, Mark records no response from those who pose the question because they're like, oh, well, um, plan B. They go back to try to reload. And in the fourth of these controversies that arises, it's even better because the opposition from the Jewish leadership of that time 
They don't even voice the question. Jesus already knows what they're thinking, and he voices it for them. (laughs) And in stating his reply to their, their thought opposition, once again, they're silenced. And Mark even notes that. He says, but they were silent. It's important to note that after that fourth Uh, encounter of opposition with Jesus, very early in the Mark of Gospel, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that they began to plot his death. So there's a change in tone here. Well, you go back to the story again, we've got this, this call. It says in verse 13 that Jesus goes out beside the sea. Maybe it's time for a little respite for Jesus. This is not unprecedented. Because of the demands upon him emotionally, spiritually, even physically, there were times that he got away. Already in this short gospel in chapter 1, we've read that there was a time in which he stepped away, verse 35, to step away, to have some time of prayer, to have some time away from the crowds. And so perhaps that's what's happening here in chapter 2, verse 13. But it also reminds us of another scene that's already occurred in this gospel back in chapter 1, verse 16, when Jesus again was by the sea in the area of Capernaum, and he called four disciples to him. Now, the difference, of course, in this is that, little difference is, that in Mark chapter 1, Jesus approaches others, calling them into his presence that he might begin to teach them. In Mark chapter 2 here, Jesus goes out alone and others pursue him. But then he acquiesces and he decides it's time to teach the crowds that gather there. There was a lot of times in which Jesus would teach by the sea. There are some who believe that depending on the area that he was in, it was almost like a natural amphitheater where the sound would be very uh, conducive to hear well with a large crowd. He could stand up against the, the sea itself and it would kind of bounce the sound back to them and they could hear well. So he's by the sea, and the crowds come, and he teaches them. And it says that as he passed by, so he's obviously now either concluded his teaching or, or he's walking and teaching. That may be the case, too. But as he's walking by, he comes to this tax booth manned by a fellow by the name of Levi. It's largely believed, this is, of course, is Matthew, the disciple, who wrote the first gospel, get into a lot of arguments from scholars about who they really think it is and whether it's not Matthew, whether it is. It's pretty well accepted that it is. And that he is a tax collector. He's working at a tax booth, so I guess that's what you call him. Uh, he's not a collector of the toll, the poll tax. He's not a collector of the income tax. That was kind of a separate category of tax collectors who were really despised. But these guys weren't exactly exalted in society either. They were known as custom officers, maybe as a little different term, and they would collect tariffs along travel routes largely for goods that were being transported, travelers coming off of the sea, those traveling by, merchants going, fishermen who would come, and, and as they'd bring their wares that they would have to pay a tax on it. And and Levi would have been one of these who was working a certain region and probably who had bidded for that area and contracted to supply the income of taxes from that area with, with the higher authorities. Now, some Jewish sources of the day didn't think too kindly of guys like Levi. They would categorize him, actually listing people together in categories of sinfulness, robbers, murderers, tax collectors. They would contain those words in the same line. And so a guy like Levi was uh, representative to so many of the people of the day of the oppression that people lived under. In fact, I found this statement from Mark Moore in his comments on this passage 
to be helpful is to kind of get us in the mindset of how people viewed him in that day. It says that the Jews simply hated this oppressive system of Roman taxation. They hated the high percentage of taxes. They hated the sheer number of different taxes, poles, bridges, roads, harbors, income, town, grain, wine, fish, fruit, etc., They hated how their money was spent on immoral and idolatrous activities. But most of all, they hated what Roman taxation represented, Roman domination of the people of God. And and I don't know about you, but as I read through some of those things they hated, I thought, yeah, I think I can kind of fit in those shoes a little bit. Don't you get that way sometimes? But there wasn't a whole lot of love lost for those who were in this profession, and it was really guilt by association. It wasn't so much what they were doing physically before them. It was, it was where that money went, how it was spent, and what it represented. Now, Levi is there. Jesus comes by, speaks to him, and calls him to follow. It seems rather abrupt that he gets up and moves on. We're not given all the details about how long that actually took. He certainly must have put some affairs in order. But it's also pretty likely that Levi, working that area, and Capernaum being Jesus' home base, he'd heard him before, he'd seen him, he'd observed some of the things that Jesus had been involved in his ministry. And so this response wasn't completely just out of the blue. Nevertheless, he follows at the call of Jesus. And I love how when we get to verse 15, the the pace and the flow comes. I I think it's rather interesting that that Mark leaves out a lot of details here, but all of a sudden, Mark assumes this intimacy that automatically develops this natural transition, at least in Mark's eyes, that we go from he rose and followed him in verse 14, then verse 15, and as he reclined at table in his house, what? Wait, wait, wait a minute. We've missed a few feet here at least. We've missed a few moments how we've come from a seaside tax booth all of a sudden into the house of Levi and they're reclining at a feast. But for Mark, it was just, yeah, this is what happens when people follow Jesus. And keep that in mind as we go on down the line here this morning. Levi, Jesus, but the text tells us not just them, other followers who would come along with Jesus and Levi, other tax gatherers, the disciples themselves who were there. You wonder if there wasn't some tension, perhaps, between the disciples who were good Jewish boys who thought, what have you dragged us into, Jesus? Why are we in a place like this with those kinds of people? They're labeled here as sinners alongside the tax collectors. That might have been almost a tongue-in-cheek designation. Sinners being those maybe who are not the worst of the worst in society, but at least in the eyes of those who are very meticulous about the Jewish law, they weren't quite checking all the boxes. They weren't ritually pure, and I think that's why probably Mark leads us with that, that they were designated sinners, because then in verse 16, the scribes arise, the scribes of the Pharisees. These are the ones who particularly would have noted people like this in the presence of Jesus were, quote, sinners, because they just weren't quite ritually pure enough. But the scribes and the Pharisees raise a question. Now, it's interesting to me, isn't it, that they're just as infatuated with Jesus as some of his legitimate followers are. They follow him at every turn. It's amazing to see where they pop up throughout the gospel story, whether it's in a grain field or somewhere else. Watching his every move, 
We tend to view these guys as rather sinister in the gospel story, and, and that's maybe not always so fair. If you look at the history of the Pharisees, they were in fact a, a group of men who had risen in a very dire time in Jewish history. They were descendants of the Hasidim, a people who, who rose to prominence in the days of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who was trying to, trying to wipe out the Jewish people in their own homeland. And these were those who stood tall and stood for the law of God and to honor God in their life, even at the risk of their own deaths. And yet, that passion to stand up for God's law as the years passed by became more and more of a burden, not only to themselves, but to the people. They became so meticulous about it, so detailed about it, that they got obsessed with it. And they began to establish division in their own people, walls of classification, walls of classification that exhibit themselves in this very story when it is that Jesus has to refer here to those who are considered sinners and the righteous, right? And Jesus comes, though, to break that barrier. Uh, but when he breaks it, it, it makes a deafening sound to the scribes of the Pharisees. Now, I get the impression that they look at Jesus and they think, at least at first, this rabbi, this teacher, this guy's got something going for him. It would be great if he were on our side. It would be great if we could train him in our ways and have him be an advocate for the things that we believe in. Let's stay close to him and try to guide him, try to mold him, try to shape him to be one of us. I think that's their intention at first. And Jesus, as he hears their question about him eating with those that are designated as sinners, he kind of pulls a saying from his own day about those who are well, those who are sick, those who are righteous, those who are sinners. When he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick... I came, not to call the righteous, but sinners. When Jesus says that, there really is a clear insinuation here that those who are considered the righteous are the scribes of the Pharisees. And I don't know that they even would have taken offense at that. I think their offense was taken to the fact that Jesus was in the presence of sinners trying to make those who were sick well, that a physician shouldn't be in such a place. Why would a physician be in the presence of sick people? What an awful thing. And they just couldn't stomach that. Again, I think that they look at Jesus as this bright, promising star that they hope to raise up in their image, that they want him to be on the same page as them, to toe the party line. And yet, here he is doing these things that seem so horrible, so off, off the mark. I think it's important also to keep in mind, though, as we look at Jesus in this situation, that he is not here denying the sin of his dinner mates. He's clarifying his mission, that his mission is not exclusion, it is redemption. And that's where I want to take just a short pause from looking a little deeper at these verses, verses 13 through 17, to jump for just a moment to the very next story in Mark chapter 2, because I think it has an important metaphor for us that really illustrates what Jesus is doing in the story just before it. There's this opposing question that comes again, and Jesus deals with it. And if you jump down to Mark 2, um, 
Well, we'll read the whole section, verse 18 through 22. This is that encounter. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So you can see the contrast here of Jesus, tax collectors, sinners, disciples, feasting. John's disciples and the Pharisees, pious, righteous, fasting. Two very different pictures. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So Jesus is pointing to a point of celebration that a new kingdom has come in, a new king has come to town, and it is time to really enjoy this. There will be a time when he'll be taken. There will be a time of mourning and loss, but for now, it's a time to feast and enjoy. And then he closes with this this metaphor with this idiom. He says, no one, verse 21, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old and a worse tear is made. And then he adds to that. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and sore the skins, but new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so Jesus comes with this new kingdom, this new covenant, which is much like new wine, and it cannot be held in the old, brittle wineskins of Jewish legalism and self-righteousness and prejudice. It is too aggressive in nature as a kingdom. And the Jewish religion of the day was far too fragile and brittle to hold it. And so Jesus begins to shatter all of that. And so looking back again at that story of, Je- of, Le- of Levi's call and then the dinner in his home, let me give to you three things that I think are helpful for us to understand about Jesus' mission, who he is, and how that impacts us. Here's the first thing. The force of the new covenant, this new kingdom that Jesus brings, the force of it is not obedience to law, but love with power. It's not finding its force in obedience to law, but love with power. You see, the approach of the scribes reveals their view of sin and how the righteous are meant to deal with it. There's an assumption that they come to Jesus with. They're assuming that Jesus wasn't taking sin seriously enough. Jesus, if you understood the power of sin, if you understood the damaging effects of sin, you would never associate yourself with these people. You were dabbling in it. You were uh, dancing with the devil by feasting with sinners. And there's this assumption, I think, that they're making that they're revealing actually a fear of sin, that the righteous will somehow become infected that sin somehow has the upper hand. And when those who are righteous come into the presence of sin, we're outmatched. We can't conquer sin, so we have to run from it. Now, let's stop for a moment and acknowledge that we, as people in a sinful world, we cannot, but we know one who can, and that's the very point of the story here. Jesus comes in and says, no, now there's a way into that. Now there is a way into the very presence of sin that does not make it the ruler, that does not make it the conqueror. The true conqueror has come. And he has come to deal with sin. You see, Jesus, when he comes and he begins to eat with people like this, 
he's displaying to us a very important principle, that he's not interested in maintaining a safe religious distance from sin. He's interested in engaging with sinners to destroy sin that kills them. Jesus is intent on a new creation, on a recreation, on bringing life where there was death. That's why I love so much the image that he gives later in his ministry recorded for us in Matthew 16 when he talks about the power of the church that Peter and the others will someday kind of be the leaders of. He says that my church, in that statement of Matthew 16, 18, my church, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we need to keep in mind what that image is portraying to us. Gates... Gates is a defensive posture, and so there's this image of hell trying to protect itself against Jesus and his kingdom, trying to keep trapped those who are sinful, those who are dead in sin, those who are condemned because of their sin. And the mission of Jesus is a very offensive, aggressive mission that comes to storm into the very presence of hell to rob it to deplete it, to set those free who are in bondage. Jesus, in essence, is saying, bring it on. (laughs) You think sin is something that can defeat me? No. I can sit in the very presence of it, and I can bring into the presence of that power a new day, a healing. I can bring life itself And so obedience to law, while it may honor God to a degree, and we we need to be intent on doing that as much as possible, it doesn't counter the power of sin. Only Christ does that. Only his love with power brings the cure. And so Jesus is intent to sit down with sinners, not viewing them from the point of view of the law, not isolating them, not surrendering them to hell, but eating with them and engaging with them and loving them and ultimately seeking their rescue. And so that's his intent. Not to bring a covenant, which is focused on the obedience to law, but with power and love. Here's the second thing that comes from this simple story of of Jesus calling Levi and feasting with he and his friends. And that is this. It gives us a picture of what the rescue is like. It's this. The way of being right with God is not self-effort, but divine grace. The way of being right with God is not self-effort, but divine grace. You see, the approach of the Pharisees, and not just in this story, but in many of the stories, reveals another deadly assumption that they had. And that assumption was that sinners can't hang out with the righteous unless they clean up first. Now, of course, we all know that those two designations of sinners and righteous are really Uh, They're pretty fluid because Paul is clear that we are all sinners and the only righteousness we bear is through Christ himself. But just playing the game of the Pharisees in their day, they had this idea that sinners can't hang out with the righteous until they clean up their act first. That's their assumption. Clean up your act, then God accepts you. And Jesus turns the whole thing around, the whole paradigm shifts And he says that, no, God invites, and then we accept, and then he cleanses us, and he moves us toward what he wants us to be. And so this scene that we're given a peek into by Mark in chapter 2 isn't just a party at Levi's house. 
Jesus isn't just there to indulge in eating and drinking with these people. He's there to offer them an invitation, not only to Levi when he calls him from the tax booth, but to all those who'd gathered in that place. And he offers them an invitation. And what's interesting then is that there's actually a shift in that, in that place. Although we may be in Levi's house and we would consider Levi the host and the rest of them the guests, all of a sudden, guess who becomes the host? Jesus. Now inviting them to something far better than food and drink that they had before them on the table. Far better than that. He offers them at his table cleansing and forgiveness. Now, that requires of us a decision. There's certainly not a thing that he just throws at us, and whether we want it or not, he suddenly makes us clean. He calls for us to decide to receive that. The invitation has to be received. He announces that at the outset in the mission, all the way back there in chapter 1, far, far back in that gospel. In verse 4, when John's mission comes to the forefront, in verse 4 of chapter 1, he appears proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus, just a few verses later, says in verses 14 and 15 that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. So as that invitation comes, although it's a work of pure grace, it requires of us to be people who are, well, to receive forgiveness, repentance, a transformation of the mind and heart. It says, I'm done being the king and the ruler and... and and, and the lead in my own life, I'm surrendering it to another. Jesus never sugarcoats the moral state of those around him. They live in sin. They're sinners. He calls them that, even in this story. And then he points to the remedy to that. And much to the scribes of the Pharisees' disfavor, Jesus says the remedy to that is not meticulous rule-keeping. It's not extensive periods of prayer. It's not bigger offerings. It's not scripture memory. It's not more acts of service. It's repentance. It's a surrender to the cleansing grace that's offered at that table. And I don't know what you think about the word repentance. I know that from my background, when I was born and raised in, in the days of hellfire and damnation preachers, we think of the word repentance as this awful thing that just yells at us to, to, to change our lives. But repentance, to me in the years since then, has really changed and moved to the whole other side of the picture. Repentance, to me, is a great picture of the grace of God because repentance is simply this. I can just surrender it to him and I don't have to live in that anymore. I don't have to try to make my own way anymore. I don't have to choose my own way. I don't have to do it by my own strength anymore. And thus continually mess up my life and stray farther and farther from him. I can release my grip and in one sweep, in one repentant move, give it up to the lover of my soul and experience his resurrection by his grace. That's what he calls us to not through our own effort, but through the act of divine grace. Then there's this last thing that I think we find in this story is so important, that in this story, the rabbi is also a king. You know, again, I think the, uh, the Pharisees of the day initially viewed Jesus as a teacher. Some of them even called him teacher, rabbi. They understood that he was on their level, Maybe above, they understood that. Uh, but that's as far as they wanted to go with that. They had an assumption 
that uh, if, you, if you just adopt a certain lifestyle of a rabbi, that then you can change your life through enough effort, that you can change your life through enough adaptation of your behavior. And Jesus comes along and he, he calls them to follow him, um, but it's a little different than the way that they were following the other rabbis of his day. And, and he wasn't calling them to completely throw away their entire life in the past either. You know, it's not this image like we have in the Wizard of Oz where Dorothy steps from a sepia-toned farmhouse in Kansas to a Technicolor Oz all of a sudden. We don't completely cast all of that away and step into another life. But there is still a radical change. Because again, I want to take you back to that transition between verses 14 and 15 of Mark chapter 2. The call to follow, Levi gets up and follows, and all of a sudden we're in the house of Levi reclining at table with all of these guests in the house. And do you see it all of a sudden? How this changes in Levi's life? It's not just about following Jesus now. Now Jesus has followed Levi into his house. He has moved from being a man who said, follow me and do what I say, to I'm following you. I'm going to live with you. I'm going to spend time with you. I'm going to eat with you. I'm going to enter the relationships that you have. And you're going to be changed through the power of my presence. You see, Jesus is not only interested in me entering his realm, he wants to enter my realm. Yes, he brings to me a death and a resurrection that I could not have under my own power, but that doesn't mean that my entire past life evaporates. That means that he steps into that life, and some things he prunes and he throws away, but some things he retains and he begins to mess with and change and alter, and he becomes not just a rabbi but a king reigning over every nook and cranny in my life, reigning and ruling in my life. Because when I start to follow Jesus, I don't abandon my existing relationships. I take those relationships and I introduce them to Jesus. And I sit down at the table with him. And he suddenly begins to deal with everything that I am. I don't abandon my life, I surrender it. And he changes it as he will. And he calls me to new things. And he opens my eyes to others. And his grace begins to work, this process of changing me, of renewing me, of restoring me. And he does that with all of us. Not just a rabbi, but a king. And so what does this mean for our lives and the lives of those around us as we go into our another week of life? Let me add three things to this that are much quicker. The first is this, that with Jesus, he calls us to start a new life. To start a new life. And maybe you're at that place right now where you're tired of walking that own, your life by your own power. You're aware of your sin, and maybe you're afraid of that, and you're thinking, there's no way Jesus wants to deal with this. But he comes to bring forgiveness, and he offers cleansing grace, not guilt-loaded rules. And he asks you to turn from ruling your own life to trusting in him. He knows everything about your sin. Nothing surprises him. And he knows you, and he loves you in spite of that. So he calls you first to start a new life. 
But the second thing is then he calls us to walk a new life. Again, he, he comes to the party and he intends to stay a while. He sits down at the table. We don't just come to him in Christian faith to be baptized and then wait for heaven. There's an interim there, isn't there, in which he continues to walk with us. We journey with the king and he wants to eat every meal with us and he wants to be the Lord of our vocation and he wants to be the king of every relationship you have. He will change you. He will ask of you hard things. He will call upon you acts of obedience. Those things don't save you. They begin to change you. And by his grace and power, you become more and more like him. The third thing is this. As we walk with him, we have the opportunity as people ask us about what we do on Sundays to show them. You see, we can take this image of Jesus going into those places that are dark and bringing light. We can be that too. Now, we can't be Jesus in that literal way. There is a respect for sin to be had because we still do possess weakness. But we're not called to be law keepers, fearful of sin at every turn, keeping to ourselves while the world around us sits in darkness. We're called to love people in those dark places and bring the light of life to them to bring rescue to them. Jesus said that the fulfillment of the law is to love God and to love people. He says that later in Mark chapter 12. And he's given to us the picture of what he himself has done in the life of Levi and those around him. If we would but listen. Father, we're thankful that your grace looks beyond what is objectionable in us. We know there's plenty that's not right. And Father, as we come to you this morning, whatever stage, whatever step we may be involved in in our lives, I pray, Father, that you will help us to surrender more and more of ourselves to the work of your grace in us. We're thankful that you've not been fearful of sin, but you come to conquer it. And we're thankful that you walk with us each day when we wonder how we're going to get through a day. We're thankful, too, that you've given to us, as we allow you to lead, the power to walk into those dark places where our friends, our neighbors, some family members some co-workers, whoever they may be, that they live in those places and we can bring the light of Christ. And when they ask us about what our Sundays are about, we can say, well, I've met a man who called me to follow him and then he followed me into my life. And he's really dabbled in my life, but he's changed it in amazing ways. We can share that message of grace. We can live that message of grace. And so I pray that we as individuals and that we as the body of Christ and that these as Galesburg Christian Church in this community may continue to grow in that. Continuing to be repentant people who are led by your grace and love. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.
So as we enter into this time of communion, I just, um, I wanted to take a moment. I mean, it's, it's always crazy how uh, sometimes there's just, without meaning it, some messages and communion messages kind of mingle together. Um, I mean, obviously it's kind of, uh, it might be easier when specifically you talk about the table, and then, and then I get to come up here, and my heart, man, I, um, I wanted to talk about the, the marriage supper that happens in the book of Revelation, chapter 19. And, uh, and for whatever reason, I, I always think about this particular section of scripture every time that we get into November. I mean, we all, we all know what happens. I mean, we get to start celebrating Christmas uh, now. But, you know, there's that period of time where we celebrate Thanksgiving in, in November also, we, we do that. And, you know, it's like two days or so in the end. Really, it's like one day, right? And then, then we go shopping. Um, but we have Thanksgiving. And at Thanksgiving, we have all these memories and these uh, moments where, you know, maybe in your own lifetime that you get to think about that banquet that gets to happen on Thanksgiving. You know, for me, it was my family's tradition where, we would, uh, you know, we would have a whole bunch of different kind of food going on, and, and one tradition that I always particularly liked, I mean, the turkey was great, and mashed potatoes were great, and the fact that my mom took care of me and, and had white gravy as well as nasty brown gravy, you can talk to me later about that, but I don't prefer it, I prefer white gravy, um, but we, uh, my mom would have all these things, but my mom would have these, this one particular thing that uh, every single year I was always super excited about. And it was simply this fruit salad with colored marshmallows on it. It's super strange, I know. Um, but for me as a kid, that was always like, that was, my fun, that was the fun thing that was on the table. And sometimes there's some bad memories that are kind of associated with Thanksgiving. And, you know, sometimes maybe there's some, some you know, angst that's kind of tied up into all of that as well. And, and I get all of that. But there's one particular story in the book of Revelation that shows of the heavenly version of what happened at that last supper. And, uh, and these angels are all standing around, you know, uh, standing around the, the throne and a great multitude, it says, crying out things like this, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just for he has judged the great multitude who corrupted the earth with, uh, with her and more and, immorality and he and has avenged on her on the blood of his servants hallelujah the smoke from her goes up forever and ever praise our god all you his servants you who fear him and small and great and then john strives to describe the marriage supper of the lamb chapter 19 verse 6 Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and the sounds of the mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, 
These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. We have this beautiful image of what it was like, what it's like in heaven. We get this glimpse into the throne room where the angels are all moving about and just joyfully worshiping God for all that he does and all that he is and everything that he gives. And we have an example of that, you know, the Last Supper, where Jesus says, take, drink of the wine. It is my blood. Take, eat of the bread. It is my body that was given for you. And he talks about the exact same thing in, in John as well. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, we are a part of the vine. I mean, it's just such an image that is just throughout all of scripture that just paints such a beautiful testimony of what we receive and the joy that we get to have as an example of this table. And we, we take communion, we have, we have juice and we have bread and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of exactly what Christ did for us on the cross. So today, as we're taking communion and we're, we're focusing in on that, remember the, the celebration that's happening in heaven as, as the bride gets to come home to the groom. Father, I thank you for everything that you do and everything that you provide. And I thank you for the cross, the salvation that came because of that, the forgiveness that was poured out from that. I pray as we are taking uh, the bread and the juice that we are drawn into the throne room, that we are pulled into the angels crying hallelujah, and that we join in, in as well and just worship you with everything that we have. Father, we thank you for your son, for the sacrifice that he gave. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.